Father, how good it is to come to You in the quiet of the end of the day, the quiet of the evening, in the quiet of this beautiful room, to be still and to know that You are God, to open the floodgates of praise from our hearts, and to declare that You are our God at all times. And Father, we are thankful that that You have made so many inroads into our life and that You continually are finding new ways to come into our heart and into our mind and to change us and to revive our attitudes, to to commit ourselves to being Your children, of of being Your disciples, citizens of your, Your kingdom, members of Your family, which is the body of Your Son, Jesus. And to obey every commandment. And to prioritize you at all costs as the supreme, the supreme value of our life. For that is what you are. We pray to slow down in these next few minutes, Father, to think deeply about Scripture, your revelation to us, your your divine disclosure to us in Scripture in order to to broaden our understanding of of Your presence in our life and in all of creation, and specifically in in our own lives, in our own experiences, and the events that unfold before us each day. We seek to follow You. And to this end, we pray in the name of Jesus to have eyes that see and ears that hear. And we ask, Father, for all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. At the heart of the first commandment is to worship no other God but the one true God. The mission of the first commandment is found in the words of Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Uh, I want to go to the second commandment tonight. The one that's found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4. To have no graven images. To have no idols in this life that we will not bow down before them. And I want to read again because of the the power of the passage that Randy uh, has read to us out of Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 15. The power of these words which remind us of the, the, the incredible gift of the image of God coming to us in Christ Himself. And, and how this correlates with that, with that second commandment. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. 
Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the Gospel. This is the Gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Through the years, uh, and I think my, my colleagues here on staff would, would say the same thing, through the years of counseling couples, I think that we have seen the same problem a number of times. The issue in the relationship is that one spouse thinks that the other is a certain way rather than seeing them for the way that they really are. And about three years into every marriage, you realize that you did not marry that spouse, but a mental image that you had of them. Now, I'm going to give you kind of an extreme example to illustrate the point clearly. I'm driving down Luke 410, and I'm in my, my truck. truck has a lot of power. I think I'm the Richard Petty of Luke 410, and I'm driving the number 43 Ford F-150. But my wife sees me more as a Mr. Magoo type driving that truck. Now, how do you think I'm going to react if she does not treat me as the Richard Petty of Luke 410 when it comes to my driving? You're driving too fast. Must you always drive so close to the back of the car in front of you? You're in the wrong lane. You're going to miss your turn. Now, most of our relationships are marred really by this problem. Now, it's not always a negative view of the person. Sometimes it's an unrealistically positive view of the spouse. But we relate to that particular person in a way that we want them to be rather than the way that they truly present themselves to be. Those of us who have had little children, we know how children love make-believe. They love making up characters and they love being those characters. But in adult relationships, there is this tremendous profound need for realism. And I think that everyone knows that this is destructive when we don't. So why do we do it? Why is it so prevalent that we, we always are struggling with the person as we want them to be rather than the person that they present themselves to be? Well, in the counseling world, it has many names, but the Bible describes it as the result of one thing. The result of a fallen world. The result of sin entering the world. The problem is sin. And we want to manipulate the environment to be what we wish it to be in order for it to please us and that it respond to us in the way that we want it to respond to us. Because this is what our hearts really want. This is what we really crave. This is what we, what we really desire. And we do it to God and we do it to God more than anyone else. Because this is what our hearts really want. God to be like. Now, if this is destructive in hu human relationships, we, we keep trying to relate to that spouse in our fantasy world, in our fantasy mind, and not in reality. We know how destructive that can be. We're not treating them as they really are, but how we wish they were. How much more devastating is it in our relationship with God? J.I. Packer, who is uh, sort of retired now, uh, one of the great theologians of our time, he writes in a book on the Ten Commandments, he says, you know, the, six, the second command forbids not the worshiping of many gods, that's the first commandment, but imagining the one true God as like yourself. 
or something lower. God's real attack is on mental images of which mental images are the consequence and not the cause. End of quote. Now I think that we see two things about imagination and images in Exodus chapter 20 and Colossians chapter 1. First, we see that when we have these graven images, that there is a poison that enters our life. And the other thing that we see in these passages, Old Testament and New Testament, we see the true beauty of the incarnate image of God. So first, let's talk about how these graven images bring poison into our life. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 13 and 19, and then 23 through 24, we have kind of a long passage here, but it's Moses talking again, iterating again what the Ten Commandments are all about and the relationship with God and what God expects for that relationship to be holy and wholesome and healthy as they get ready for a second time to enter into that promised land. And so he says in Deuteronomy 4, in this series of of sermons, Deuteronomy is basically three sermons that he gives prior to their entering into the land again. Moses says, He declared to you His covenant, the Ten Commandments, which He commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt, so that you do not become corrupt, so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal or earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping the things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. And then verse 23, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that He made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now you know as well as I do that the background to all of this is the golden calf some four decades earlier at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses is up there on top of that mountain in that cloud with, with, the, uh, with the fire and the lightning and he's getting the Ten Commandments that are written for him in stone. And what Moses is emphasizing 40 years later as the people are trying to go back into the land and the danger of that golden calf, even though it's 40 years in the past, the danger of that golden calf and those idols that will present themselves again and again and again. And Moses is emphasizing something really important here, that there was no form. You saw no form. Only a voice. Now why in the world would he emphasize you saw no form? You heard only a voice. I think it's because of this truth about idols, that an idol always conceals more than it reveals. An idol will not only hijack your heart when it comes to worship, but it's going to conceal more than it reveals about itself. I mean, so how does that work? How does this idol really conceal more than than it reveals? We'll go back 40 years to Mount Sinai and you have Aaron making this golden calf. Moses is up on the mountain. Joshua is somewhere halfway up that mountain. And... And there's this golden calf that is fashioned out of the gold that's presented to Aaron. And this golden calf is being worshipped by the people. 
the golden calf might reveal strength. It might in some way reveal power. But what does the golden calf really say about God's wisdom? What does a golden calf that talks about strength and power say about God's benevolence in providing manna and quail to the people or water out of a rock in the middle of a desert? What about God's love? What does the golden calf say about God's compassion and His mercy? How is God's personality revealed in a golden calf? The idol always conceals and makes hidden more than they reveal. Think of it this way. If you were to draw a face of God, a simple face of God, would you draw that face with a smile or a frown? Would you draw the face of God with a smile or a frown? If you put a smile on the face of God, a smiley face God, then what does that communicate about the wrath of God towards all things that are unholy? What does that smiley face God say about how God feels about sin and the fallen nature of His people and the whole reason that the book of Leviticus had to be written in the first place? But let's flip this coin around to the other side. What if you put a frown on the face of God? What if you put a frown, a frowny face, God, on that piece of paper? Then what does that tell you about God's chesed? His long, His loving kindness. His, his mercy. What does that tell you about long-suffering? Or what if you put in the hand of God thunderbolt? What does that say about His loving the world and giving His only begotten Son? The idol will always conceal more than it reveals about God's true nature. And idols will always have their limitations. And therein lies the poison. Therein lies the poison. That lie is what hijacks your heart. In Christianity, in South America and it has for a number of years, it's been more attractive to women than to men. Why? Well, because Jesus is predominantly portrayed as a, 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 this emaciated, skinny, weak, pale male without a, a shred of bicep, and He's hanging on a cross. He's been lynched, and He allowed them to do it to Him. So to the eyes of Macho Hispanic males in South America, Jesus is in no way exemplary of the kind of life that they want to live. In the Hispanic male mind, that Jesus would not last five minutes in the barrio. Where is that carpenter? Where is the one who turned over the tables of the money changers? And it goes deeper than that. He says, you shall not make a graven image. It doesn't always have to be that thing that is out there 3D and solid and, 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 and kinetic that we can touch. It can happen in our imaginations. It doesn't take much thinking to see that the word image and imagination are rooted together. That the physical image is always based on the mental imagination. This is the way that I thought God would present Himself as powerful and as strong. And it came out of this gold as a golden calf. The physical image is always based on the mental imagination. And the imagination is to be regulated by truth. That's why Packer says any statement that begins with the words, I like to think God is like, fill in the blank, 
should not be trusted. And you hear statements like that a lot because we live in a time with objective truth uh, uh, being suspect. It's not a, a concept that is understood or accepted. It's all relative. It's all subjective truth. But the second command is about objective truth. We do not worship what we think God is or what we think God should be, but as He reveals Himself to be through His Word, through His inspired Word. I mean, if you ate only what you wanted, you would be in trouble. Appetite appetite is never to be trusted. You will either overeat or you will undereat. If you relate to people based only on visceral impression, those first impressions, I get a gut uh, instinct of how this person is like, they may be good, they may be bad, But if we relate to people based only on those first impressions, we would only relate to people who are just like us. Our initial gut impressions of people would never be a help in overcoming biases and fears and prejudices. Our imagination, like everything else, has been corrupted by sin and it needs to be regulated by truth. And this is the lofty call inside of the second command. You shall not have idols. You shall not have graven images to bow down before them. And we must not be afraid of the truth regardless of how it might irritate us or ever frustrate us. Yes, you know, the truth can be frustrating. I'm the kind of guy who does not like to hear that something is wrong with my car. So Ellen and I, we get into the car, we get into the truck, we're going someplace, it's the middle of the summer, it's 110 degrees, somewhere out in the hill country, and after a while she says, Mark, I go, what? She says, I don't think the AC is working properly. I say, ah, don't worry about it, just give it a chance, it'll cool down. Ten minutes later she says, I don't think the AC is working. Now it becomes irritating and frustrating when you finally have to admit that there's a problem with the air conditioning. The fantasy world... It works just fine. Just give it some time. It's colliding with reality. It's broken down and it's only going to get worse. And it's frustrating because you're no longer in control. The garage or the car dealership or some mechanic that you don't know his first name from his last name is now in control of this vehicle. And we want to be able to manipulate the environment through imagination, but we finally run up against reality. Same thing happens as parents when it comes to our children. How many times do parents not really see what other people see going on with their kids? There are those times, uh, you know, when when we think that we see our kids and and, and we see them kind of through rose-colored glasses when everybody else sees that these kids are out of control. There was a counselor... One of the best counselors I've ever known in my life, just intuitive as a man, one of the most intuitive individuals I've ever been around, fantastic listener, very insightful, very wise, for a a long period of time in the early years of my ministry, was a a mentor and and a counselor to me in the sense of, of his friendship as an older man to a younger man. And he thought that he had, because he was a counselor, he thought he had all of these great insights into his kids. And he didn't have a clue as to what was going on inside of them until his imagination collided with reality, which involved police and drugs. But that's cars and those are kids. What about God? And how about God? We always think of God in ways that we want Him to be. Somebody says, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. 
Or I can't believe in a God of love who allows all of this suffering in the world. Now, if something like your air conditioning has to be regulated by reality and your kids have to be seen in the truth of who they are and not what you imagine them to be, how much more so God? We live in a world where God is misunderstood. We live in a world where God is so misunderstood. And there is nothing more frustrated than being misunderstood. So why would we treat God in a way that we would never want to be treated in a million years? The second command is a stark reminder in the vast landscape of subjective relativity that God is who He reveals Himself to be in Scripture and nothing less. Which sometimes means that He's not safe. And sometimes means that He is not tame. Which means that He is never in a box contained within the limits of our own understanding. He's bigger. And if we treat Him differently than He reveals Himself to be, then know we are on a collision course with reality. So what is the solution? I think it's seeing the beauty of the Incarnation. The reason we want images and like images is it, it gives us something to relate to. It gives us something to relate to. But if we have an image of God, the temptation is we're going to want to control Him. And if we don't have an image of Him, then we struggle and think that we're going to miss on some kind of a personal relationship. And God knows this. And remember that the making of images was not forbidden. Images of the cherubim were fashioned for the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. But only God can make an image of Himself. And so what He has done is to reveal Himself in Jesus. Look again from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. If you want a verse to meditate on for the rest of this week, this is it. The Son who is Jesus. The Son is the image, that is what we can see, of the invisible God. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. That word is the word in Greek, icon. And as the the visible image of the invisible God, Jesus becomes the antidote of of the problem of idol-making. But the question is, how? How is He? If He's the image, then how how does He become the antidote to our hearts in wanting to make images? Well, under all of that is this false, distorted image of God. Under all of the false and distorted images of God, there is this assumption that we are wiser and smarter than God that I know better than God what I need in this life, or I know how I need God to answer this this issue, or how I need Him to take care of this area, area of worry or of anxiety. And many of us here tonight are desperately worried about something. We're worried about the end of the month. We're worried about health. We're worried about family. We're worried about taxes. We're worried about health care. We're worried about all kinds of things. And if you're worried about how things will go this week, then at some level, maybe unconsciously, 
you're beginning to, to, to be tempted with the idea that you know how things ought to go in your life even better than God knows how they should go. So what do you do? You look at the icon of God in the person of Jesus in the garden. And you think of Jesus and all that He was going through as the only person who truly suffered unjustly. He did not deserve any of those things that He got. Remember how Scripture says not only that He died, but according to Scripture He had to suffer, and suffer He did. None of that deserved. And He prays about there being another way to, to do it. If it's possible for this cup to be passed off to pass His lips, at least for His lips not to touch it. But in the end, it's about the will of God being done. So if we did not have this passage, what would we do? If we didn't have the Garden of Gethsemane, what would we do? Just tell people don't worry because God says so? Under the havoc of worry and under the mountain of anxiety, you look at Jesus. And what you see is Him not submitting Himself to what He wants God's answer to be. But you see Himself submitting Himself and trusting Himself and giving Himself to the goodness and the wisdom of the Father as God had revealed Himself. And to trust that to the nth degree. I, I think at times we always should, should, it shouldn't be at times, it should always be a, a part of the way that we think about our life. That to, to think about our life in light of not who we want God to be or what we hope that, that God is, but how God reveals Himself in Scripture. That's one of the reasons why we're going to start in Genesis and go through every book of the Bible this next year and just glory in the revelation of God and the story of God as it intersects our life and has meaning for our life and to see the image of God in Jesus and how every Scripture from Genesis to Revelation points to the Jesus of those Gospels who is the image of the invisible God. And as we meditate on that, and as we, we do business with that, and as we're honest with it, and we pray for the eyes that see, and we pray for the ears to hear God's voice in those texts. And we look at Him, Jesus, in that garden, and we trust. We trust. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And perhaps there are some ways that we can minister to you tonight. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If there are ways that our church can reach out to you or to touch you or to study with you or pray with you, we want you to come down and talk to these, our elders, our shepherds, our spiritual leaders right now as we stand and sing together.